Did you know that you can be a critically thinking, rational person and be a Christian? Did you know that there's good evidence that Christianity is true? Did you know that the Christian faith can withstand the toughest of scrutiny? Welcome to the Cerebral Faith Podcast, where we believe because of the brains God gave us and not in spite of them. I'm your host, Evan Minton. Welcome to the second episode of the Cerebral Faith Podcast. I'm your host, Evan Minton, and today we will be talking about the Kalam cosmological argument for God's existence. What is the Kalam cosmological argument? The Kalam cosmological argument is one of several variants of first cause arguments. It's a philosophical argument uh, um, that argues for the existence of God by explaining that the universe had an absolute beginning. And because it had an absolute beginning, it must have a cause. And when you examine exactly what type of properties a cause of the universe should have, you end up with a being that has many of the attributes that when you take them together look an awful lot like the Christian concept of God. Now, this this argument has been around for many centuries i think a thousand years it was uh, a it was its most sophisticated form was developed by a 12th century muslim philosopher named al ghazali and but perhaps it has been pop, most popularized become most well known because of the christian philosopher dr william lane craig of reasonable faith ministries Now, before I start propounding this argument and defending it, I want to get into a little bit of Logic 101. First of all, we need to know what makes for a good argument. What are the criteria that determine whether an argument is sound or not? Whether it's a good one. There are three criteria that an argument must meet in order to be a successful argument. One, the logic must be valid. Two, the premises must be true. And three, we must have good reasons to believe that the premises are true. Now, what do I mean that the logic must be valid? By this, I mean that in order for an argument to be a good one, the conclusion must follow from the initial premises by the rules of logic. Premises are statements in an argument, all of which must be true in order for us to <clears throat> in order for us to legitimately claim that the conclusion is true. There are nine basic rules of logic: modus ponens, modus tollens, hypothetical syllogism, disjunctive syllogism, conjunction, destructive di- uh, di- constructive dilemma, simplification, absorption, and addition. Now, don't get turned off by all of those highfalutin sounding names. <laughs> you don't, it, it is not needed for in order for you to to understand what I'm going to be talking about in this podcast episode. If you're new to logic and have never heard of these uh, fancy names, don't worry about it. Um, I'll I'll just tell you which rule of logic this argument in this podcast will follow. Um, now an example of a modus ponens argument is when it takes a symbolic representation is one, if P, then Q. Two, P. Three, therefore Q. If P, then Q. P, therefore Q. An example of a modus ponens argument would be one, all men are mortal. Two, Socrates is a man. Three, therefore Socrates is mortal. This is a logically valid argument because it takes the form of modus ponens. Now, in order for you to determine whether Socrates is mortal, you would have to first determine whether all men are really mortal, the the truth of the first premise, and whether Socrates was a man, whether he was a real person in history. For the first premise, you could look at, uh, you could reason inductively that every single person who has ever lived on the planet that you know of 
has come to the end of their life eventually. That you, uh, you don't have any evidence for any immortals walking around. You don't have any. Um, you you don't have. You've never met a, a lady me. You know, if you if you're a Doctor Who fan, you know who that is. Uh, you know that it's uh, the Doctor gave this Viking girl. Um, she died, but he gave her a piece of alien technology that would never stop repairing her, and so she basically is unable to die. You have no you have no idea whether there's anyone like that, but even if there were, that would be the exception to the rule: all men or all humans are mortal. Um, you could look at medical evidence, and you can study biology and establish that all human beings are mortal. Now, for the second premise, you could look at historical evidence that shows that Socrates was a real person of history. And so you would give evidence for the truth of these two statements. And therefore, you would be justified in believing that the two statements are true, which then would make you justified in believing that the prim the conclusion is true. Socrates is mortal. So, those those are the three. So those are the three criteria. You must have valid logic. Must follow one of the nine rules of inference, like modus ponens. The premises must be true. You can't have false premises in a good argument, and you must have good evidence to show that the premises are true. It's not just enough that the premises are true. If you don't have any good, re if you don't have any reason to believe the premises are true, the premises could be true for all you know, but you would have no way of of concluding whether or not they're true. So, true, valid logic, true premises, and evidence to show that the premises are true. Those are the criteria to make a good argument. And with that, now let's examine the Kalam cosmological argument for God's existence. The premises of this argument are, 1. Whatever begins to exist has a cause. 2. The universe began to exist. 3. Therefore, the universe has a cause. Whatever begins to exist has a cause. The universe began to exist. Therefore, the universe has a cause. This is a logically valid argument. It's The conclusion follows from the premises by the rule of modus ponens. So, if the premises are true, then the conclusion follows logically and necessarily. So, are these premises true, or are they false? Well, let's look at them. Premise 1. Whatever begins to exist has a cause. This premise states that if X comes into being... It is the result of something that existed prior to X, which caused it to come into being. There are at least three reasons for affirming this premise. One, nothingness has no properties. To deny this premise is to say that things can just pop into being without any cause whatsoever, that is to say, from nothing. This is surely absurd. Nothingness has no properties. Nothingness is not a thing. Rather, nothingness is the absence of all being. As Aristotle humorously put it, quote, nothingness is what rocks dream about, end quote. Now, given that nothingness has no properties whatsoever, it follows that it doesn't have any causal properties. Since it has no causal properties, it is unable to bring anything into existence. To say that something can come from nothing is so absurd that if anyone truly believed this, I would be concerned for their mental health. It would be easier for me to believe that the earth is flat than to believe that something could pop into being from nothing. Two, if something can come into being from nothing, then why isn't this observed more frequently? One must wonder that if it is truly possible for something to come into being from nothing, why doesn't it happen more often? Why is it that out of my seven, 27 years of living, I have not w once witnessed something pop into being from nothing? Why haven't I ever witnessed uh, a sumo wrestler materialize in my bedroom while I was blogging? Why haven't I ever seen a large pepperoni pizza appear 
in my arms, out of the clear blue, why don't we ever hear of news reports uh, that say something like, Earlier today, a woman was jogging in Central Park, and then all of a sudden, a lion materialized out of nothingness and mauled her to death. <laughs> why don't we hear about these things? Why don't we hear about... Why don't we hear news reports about car accidents occurred? Because, um... On Highway 85, a mansion just materialized right there in the middle of the freeway, causing several cars to crash into it. <laughs> Why don't we ever hear about these sort of things? Why don't... If, if it is possible that things can come into being out of nothing without a cause... Why don't we hear about these sorts of things? Maybe they don't happen because they can't happen, and maybe they can't happen because the first premise of the, of the argument is true. As Dr. William Lane Craig put in his book On Guard, in his chapter on the Kalam Cosmological Argument, he wrote, quote, What makes nothingness so discriminatory? There can't be anything about nothingness that favors universes, for nothingness doesn't have any properties. Nor can anything constrain nothingness, for there isn't anything there to be constrained, end quote. And what Craig was saying was, if nothingness has the ability to bring things into being, then why is it only universe? Why, why is the origin of the universe the only example of this ever happening? And why does it? He and, and Craig. Craig gave several examples. He says, "Why does? Why don't bicycles and Beethoven and root beer pop into being out of nothing?" And then he goes on to say, "What makes nothingness so discriminatory? There can't be anything about nothingness that favors universes, for nothingness doesn't have any properties, nor can anything constrain nothingness, for there isn't anything there to be constrained." Quote and end quote. <laughs> I mean that that is a good point. Three, this premise is constantly verified and is never falsified. Premise one is constantly verified and is never falsified. In our experience, whenever we see things coming into being, whenever we see something coming into being, something being put together, something being built, something going from non-existence to existence, we always see a cause or causes making them. If I witness a, when every time I've ever seen a sandwich being made, I saw a person putting it together. But I've never seen a sandwich just poof itself right in front of me. When we see houses and buildings coming into being, we see construction workers following carefully devised blueprints to put everything into place. It's a hard ha there are men walking around carrying big, large wooden boards, uh, wearing hard hats and and there's heavy heavy machinery around and 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 stuff like that but we we never see houses just poof into existence whenever someone witnesses a human being coming into being well <laughs> someone walked in on on a couple's intimate <laughs> intimate moment but we we Whatever we see people coming to being, um, that that would be the conception. But let, let's talk about birth. There's always a woman and a baby is coming out of it. But you're not just walking down the street one day and a fellow just pops right pops into being out of nothing and says, "Oh, hey, I'm, hello, my name is Fred." <laughs> oh, every single time we witness something coming into being, we see that it has a cause. So the first reason to believe that whatever begins to exist has a cause is that nothingness has no properties. Nothingness is a term of universal negation. Nothingness is not a thing. It is the absence of all being. As Aristotle put it, it's, what's ro it's what rocks dream about. So it has no causal properties. In fact, it doesn't have any properties of any kind because it is not an it. It is not anything. And therefore, it cannot cause anything. Secondly, we have we have no examples of things coming into being out of nothing. And if it were possible, we ought to see it happening more often. Thirdly, in our, our experience shows that whenever things come into being, something caused them to come into being. 
So the, the first premise is true. What about the second premise? Premise two, the universe began to exist. Now this premise has four lines of evidence in its favor. Two of them are scientific arguments and the other two are philosophical. Let's look at these four lines of evidence. Scientific confirmation one, the Big Bang Theory. Albert Einstein, in the early 1900s, presented his general theory of relativity. Einstein's equations predicted a universe that was either in a constant state of expansion or contraction. Einstein was not fond of the implications of his theory, so he added a fudge factor to his theory to avoid those implications. During the 1920s, the Russian mathematician Alexander Friedman and the Belgian astronomer George Lemaitre managed to independently formulate mathematical models of the universe that predicted its expansion. After that, in 1929, the American astronomer Edwin Hubble discovered that the light coming from the distant galaxies appeared to be much redder than they should have been. Now, what do I mean when I say that Edwin Hubble saw that the light from the distant galaxies appeared redder than they should have been? In physics, a redshift is when light or other electromagnetic radiation from something has a wavelength that is stretched to the point that its light goes over to the red side of the light spectrum. The galactic redshifts are an example of the Doppler effect. The Doppler effect is a change in frequency or wavelength of either sound or light caused by the motions of the source itself to the observer of the source. For example, if you were standing on the side of the road and you heard a race car approaching you at a constant speed, you would, no you would notice that as the car gets closer and closer, the pitch or tone of its engine sounds the same. But once the car passes you, the pitch of the engine changes, and it sounds lower than it did, than it was, uh, than it did when it was approaching you. This is because that as the race car approaches you, the sound waves are closer together, but as it moves away from you, the sound waves are farther apart. Shorter wavelengths and longer wavelengths. Well, Hubble noticed the same sort of stretching in the light shining from the distant galaxies. Since the light waves were being stretched, Hubble concluded that the galaxies are moving away from us, and the reason they're moving away from us is that the universe is expanding. Now, for the first time, we finally had empirical evidence predicted by the theoretical work of Einstein, Friedman, and Lemaitre. This had astounding implications. The fact that the universe is expanding means that the universe had an absolute beginning. How so? Well, if the universe is getting bigger and bigger and bigger as it gets older and older and older, then logically... It must have been smaller and smaller when it was younger and younger. Imagine the expansion of of the universe as being like, um, as imagine the expansion of the universe being played on a on a film projector. Now, as you as you play the film forward, you will see the universe expanding. The galaxies are moving away from one another, and space is getting larger and larger and more expansive but stop the stop the uh, the projector and hit the rewind button what you will what you will see on this video projector of the expansion of the universe the galaxies will be moving closer and closer together space will be growing denser and denser and denser just keep hitting just keep the rewind button playing don't stop it keep that rewind button on that video projector going and eventually you will see the universe shrink to the size of the of a period at the end of a sentence in the book keep uh, rewind it further still and the universe will shrink down to nothing This the universe began expanding from a point of infinite density about 14 billion years ago in a violent, rapid, explosion-like expansion. 
the astronomer Fred Hoyle dubbed this the Big Bang Theory. Now, it is important to realize that the Big Bang Theory is a misleading name. It, When you hear Big Bang Theory, it makes it sound like all of the matter in the universe was just tiny, just clustered together in one place, and then it exploded and dispersed into pre-existing space. But the theory is far more radical than that. Right? It is not the case that there was a, a dense pellet of matter, and 14 billion years ago that pellet of matter exploded and ex expanded into all areas of pre-existing space. Rather, it is space itself that is expanding. Um, William Lane Craig, and Stephen Meyer for that matter, um, and several others, uh, have given a good illustration to help grasp this, dif this difficult concept. They say to, they say to imagine a an inflatable balloon, well, eh, well, actually, all of balloons are inflatable. Uh, imagine a balloon with buttons glued on the surface. Now, as you inflate the balloon, the balloon will get bigger and bigger, and the buttons will grow farther and farther apart. Now, the, the buttons represent the galaxy, the galaxies in the universe, and the balloon represents space as the balloon expands the 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 gal the buttons move away from each other the buttons aren't actually moving at all they're at rest on the surface of the balloon but the the fabric the rubber fabric of the balloon is expanding and as a result of the rubber fabric of the balloon expanding the buttons grow farther apart. And in the same way, the galaxies aren't actually going anywhere. They're at rest in space. But since the fabric of space is expanding, the galaxies are moving farther and farther apart. Moreover, uh, it, there is no center of the universe. Any, any observer on any button slash galaxy will think that he's at the the middle of the expansion and that everything else is moving away from him but that is not the case so the big bang theory is is far more radical than what the name would suggest it is the or all of space time matter and energy are expanding and when you rewind the clock when you when you rewind that video projector, the universe gets smaller and smaller and smaller until it shrinks down to nothingness. B backward extrapolation is what this is called. The universe began to exist. Now, other aside from the theoretical mathematical predictions of Einstein, Friedman, and Lamatra, and the empirical evidence discovered by Edwin Hubble of the red galactic red shift, there are other pieces of scientific evidence for the Big Bang Theory. Um, the, light, the abundance of light elements in the universe support the Big Bang Theory. Astrophysicists Deborah and Lauren Harzma explain in their book Origins, A Chris, Christian Perspectives on Creation, Evolution, and Intelligent Design, that, quote, "...the third major piece of evidence is the amount of helium in the universe." The ordinary matter in the universe is about 75% hydrogen, 24% helium, and 1% other elements. Why this percentage and not some other ratio? Even in a universe billions of years old, the fusion, of, the fusion in stars happens much too slowly to account for this much helium. Using the Big Bang model, astrophysicists calculate that the conditions of the universe about three minutes after the Big Bang were very similar to the interior of a star and just right for fusion reactions. The temperature and density of the hydrogen gas allowed it to fuse into helium and into trace amounts of deuterium and lithium. The calculations of the Big Bang model even make precise predictions for the relative percentages of helium, deuterium, and lithium that would be produced. 
The model predicts that about 24% of the gas would be helium, in agreement with what astronomers observe. End quote. Additionally, scientists predicted that if the universe is expanding from a Big Bang, then there should be residual radiation pervading the cosmos. This residual energy was confirmed by accident when Arno Penzias and Robert Wilson were experimenting with the Homdel antenna. Everywhere they turned the antenna, they picked up static. Initially, they thought that this static was caused by bird droppings uh, that were on their satellites and on their antennas. Uh, However, when they removed the bird droppings, they found that they were still getting static. Further investigation showed that the static was the cosmic microwave background radiation, which was predicted by the Big Bang Theory. The Big Bang Theory predicted that if the universe really began in a very small state, it would be trillions and trillions of degrees Fahrenheit, and, and that as the universe expanded, it would cool down, and that some of that heat, that residual heat, would still be around and detectable, but up until this point, they hadn't detected that radiation. Penzias and Wilson detected it by accident, and they won the Nobel Prize in the 1970s for this discovery. So, 14 billion years ago, matter, energy, space, and time came into being. The Big Bang. It's not just a hilarious sitcom. Now, the second scientific confirmation comes from the second law of thermodynamics. In addition to the evidence, uh, the cosmological evidence for the Big Bang Theory, we the, the second law of thermodynamics points that the universe had a beginning. Now, what is the second law of thermodynamics? The second law of thermodynamics states that processes taking place in a closed system always tend toward a state of equilibrium. And it also transfers heat from hot bodies to cold bodies. At the time of this recording, it's winter, and I have my heater going. Fortunately, I have a noise-canceling mic, so you can't really hear it unless I stop talking for a a certain period of time. Like, uh, I, I heard... I heard some of my uh, I heard the fan at the beginning of the of the previous podcast that was unfortunate but uh, well the second law causes the heat from my ceramic heater to tra- uh, to fill the entire room and not just be confined to a corner heat travels from hot bodies to cold bodies the heat travels from the hot body the ceramic heater to the colder body my bedroom. So, this is why I sometimes smile when people say, close the door, you're letting the cold in. I'm like, that's not how thermodynamics works. Heat goes from hot bodies to cold bodies, not the other way around. When you leave the door open in the winter, the cold doesn't get in. You're not letting the cold in, you're letting the heat out. (laughs) Now, the second law of thermodynamics has is relevant to the Kalam argument because what, if it, what it entails when it's applied to the universe as a whole? Because the universe is a gigantic closed system. No energy is being fed into it from the outside, which I say on the basis of the first law of thermodynamics. The first law says that matter and energy can neither be created nor destroyed. The astrophysicist Kevin Pimblett wrote an article on phys.org, P-H-Y-S dot O-R-G. It was titled, The Fate of the Universe, Heat, Death, Big Rip, or Cosmic Consciousness. In that article on phys.org, Kevin Pimblett wrote, quote, As the universe carries on expanding, we will no longer be able to observe galaxies outside our local group 100 million years from now. Star formation will then cease in about 1 to 100 trillion years as the supply of gas needed will be exhausted. While there will, will, 
While there will be some stars around, these will run out of fuel in some 120 trillion years. All that is left at that point is stellar remnants. Black holes, neutron stars, white dwarfs being the prime examples. 100 quant quintillion, 10 to the 20th power, years from now, most of these objects will be swallowed up by the supermassive black holes at the heart of galaxies. In this way, the universe will get darker and quieter until there's not much going on. What happens next will depend on how fast the matter in the universe decays. It is thought that protons, which make up atoms along with neutrons and electrons, spontaneously decay into subatomic particles if you just wait long enough. The time for all ordinary matter to disappear has been calculated to be 10 to the 40th power years from now. Beyond this, only black holes will remain, and even they will evaporate away after some 10 to the 100th power years." End quote. Now, this raises a very interesting question. If the universe did not begin to exist, if, if it has existed forever, then it's been chugging away its energy from all eternity. Now, if the universe has only a finite amount of energy and it's been chugging away its energy for an infinite amount of time, then why is there still usable energy left? Why are there still stars forming? Why are there still atoms decaying into subatomic particles? This stuff should have happened an infinite amount of time ago, and yet it hasn't. The best explanation for this is that the universe hasn't always been here. In their book, I Don't Have Enough Faith to Be an Atheist, Frank Turek and Norman Geisler give a good analogy to get this point across. If you were walking through the forest and found a flashlight on the ground that was still shining light, what would your conclusion be? That the, the light had been there from eternity past, shining? Well, no. If the flashlight had only a finite amount of battery juice and it had been shining, it still has battery life left in it, your conclusion would be that someone had dropped the flashlight a finite time ago. In fact, very recently. If the, if the flashlight had always been there from eternity past, then it, it would have exhausted its battery powers an infinite amount of time ago. It would not have battery life left. Likewise, since the universe still has usable energy even though it has a finite amount of usable energy and we are losing more and more of it as time goes on, the best explanation is that the universe has not been chugging away its energy from all eternity. There was a point when all of the energy in the universe was 100% usable. Now, now that those are the scientific arguments for the universe's beginning. I want to now get into the philosophical arguments. As I said at the beginning of this podcast episode, this argument has been around since uh, the 10th century, the 11th century. It's been around for a thousand years. But only all, this abundance of scientific evidence was only discovered in the past in the past 100 years since the since the early 20th century. So, how did people defend the second premise? Without all of this scientific knowledge, well, they had philosophical arguments, mathematical arguments for why the universe must have a beginning. And these are the two arguments I'm going to get into. One argument that Al-Ghazali <clears throat> Al put forth was that an actually infinite number of things cannot exist. Now, I want to, at this point... Before I move on, I need to cl I need to clarify my terms. There are there is a difference between a potential infinite amount of things and an actual infinite amount of things. An actual infinite amount of things is a number of things. An actual infinite is a number larger than any finite number. 
any number you can think of, be it 1, 2, 3, or 99 octillion, uh, infinity will always be greater than that number you're thinking of. The number you're thinking of could have trillions and trillions of numerals in it. And infinity will be greater than it. That's an actual infinite. Now, a potential infinite is simply a growing number of items that approaches infinity as a number, but it never gets there. Infinity serves as a limit, but you never get there. So, for example, um, when I... I, we, uh, the Bible teaches that we're going to have that we that Jesus gives us eternal life, and we're going to live for all eternity in the new heavens and the new earth that God will create. We will not have an end, but we will never have an act. We will never have an infinityth birthday. Every single day that we live in God's new creation, there will always be another day that you can add to the list. You'll will never. We'll never have an infinitieth day in heaven. So this, these are the, the differences between an actual infinite and a potential infinite. Now, I believe, and Al-Ghazali did as well, that potential infinites can exist. You can have an ever-increasing number of things that approach infinity but never get there. But an actual infinite is what Ghazali took issue with. And in his book, On Guard, and I think, I think also in Reasonable Faith, William Lane Craig appeals to an illustration that the, uh, a German mathematician, David Hilbert, conjured up to show why an actually infinite number of things cannot possibly exist. And this illustration is called Hilbert's Hotel. And I'm, I'm going to quote from, from his book here. Uh, William Lane Craig writes, and I quote, Hilbert first imagines us, uh, invites us to imagine an ordinary hotel with a finite number of rooms. Suppose, furthermore, that all the rooms are full. If a new guest shows up at the desk asking for a room, the manager says, sorry, all the rooms are full. And that's the end of the story. But now, says Hilbert, let's imagine a hotel with an infinite number of rooms. And let's suppose that once again that all the rooms are full. This fact must be clearly appreciated. There is not a single vacancy throughout the entire infinite hotel. Every room already has a flesh and blood person in it. Now suppose a new guest shows up at the front desk asking for a room. No problem, says the manager. He moves the person who was staying in room number one into room number two, the person who was staying in room number two into room number three, the person who was staying in room number three into room number four, and so on to infinity. As a result of these room changes, room number one now becomes vacant, and the new guest gratefully checks in. But before he arrived, all the rooms were already full. It gets worse. Let's now suppose, Hilbert says, that an infinite, an infinity of new guests shows up at the front desk asking for rooms. No problem, no problem, says the manager. He moves the person who was staying in room number one into room number two. The person who was staying in room number two into room number four the person who was staying in room number three into room number six, each time moving the person into the room number twice his own. Since any number multiplied by two is an even number, all the guests wind up in even-numbered rooms. As a result, all the odd-numbered rooms become vacant and the infinity of new guests is easily accommodated. In fact, the manager could do this an infinite number of times and always accommodate infinitely more guests. And yet, before they arrived, all the rooms were already full. End quote. 
Now, William Glenn Craig goes on to say that one of his students, when he was giving this illustration, he remarked to Craig that if a hotel like that could actually exist, it would have to have a sign posted outside it saying, No vacancy! Guests welcome! <laughs> I often joke at Christmas time that if only Mary and Joseph had gone to Hilbert's hotel, they would have had a place to stay. <laughs> um, Hilbert's hotel is clearly absurd. Now, um, the thing, the thing is, is, um, that in the first example, you've added to infinity. All of the rooms were full. An infinite number of rooms held an infinite number of people. But you added another person to the room, uh, to the hotel. And then in the second example... Everyone moved to the room that was double his own number. So, two, uh, 1 into 2, 2 into 4, 3 into 6. And so, as a result, you had an infinite number of full rooms and an, infinite num an actually infinite number of empty rooms. You had just as many em empty rooms in this hotel as you did full rooms. And yet it's the same number of rooms. You have the, the hotel didn't get no one built n new floors in an instant. And uh, I think uh, later on Craig goes on to say, "Hey, what happens what happens if everyone in the room numbers 4 and greater were to check out?" And what happens is is that the registry on the hotel is reduced to only 3 numbers. A hotel that was bursting at the seams becomes virtually empty. And yet in every case, it's the same number of people checking in and checking out. An infinite number of people checked out. So you would think, right? An infinite number of people in the hotel check out. An infinite number of people are in the room. Therefore, it should be zero, right? Well, not if persons in rooms one, two, and three are still in there. In that case, infinity minus infinity is 3. But yeah, if everyone from room 1 to room actual infinity check out, then infinity minus infinity is 0. But if rooms, but if everyone in the odd-numbered rooms check out, then you have an infinite number of people check out, but you still have an infinite number of people in the hotel. And in that case, infinity minus infinity is 0. How is this possible? We've subtracted identical quantities from identical quantities, and yet we've arrived at non-identical results. This is absurd. Actual infinites can't exist. Now, Al-Ghazali, he gave an illustration of his own to show that actual infinites can't exist. He said to imagine that... Now, this isn't actually possible. We know... Everyone admits that the solar system had a beginning, but let's say that the solar system existed from eternity past. And let's say that for every orbit that Jupiter makes, Saturn makes two. Or maybe it was the other way around. It's not germane to this point. Anyway, for planet one, let's just call them planet one and planet two. Planet one makes uh, two orbits for every orbit that planet 2 makes. If Jupiter makes one orbit, Saturn will make two. But let's suppose that they've been doing this from eternity past. In this case, uh, Jupiter will fall infinitely far behind Saturn. If Jupiter makes one orbit, for every one orbit it makes, Saturn makes two, then the longer they orbit, the farther and farther and farther Jupiter will fall behind in the number of orbits it makes compared to Saturn's. However, what if they've been doing this from eternity past? There was never a, a point in which they started ro revolving around the Sun. In this case, they've both completed an actually infinite number of orbits. Now, how is that possible? How is it that just simply having the planets ro revolve around the sun from eternity past somehow magically makes their numbers equal? 
they've completed an equal number of orbits. Um, it's just actual infinites entail absurdities. If they really exist, absurdities like the ones I just talked about would follow. So, we can construct a syllogism here. Premise one, if an actually infinite number of things cannot exist, then the universe cannot be past eternal. Two, an actually infinite number of things cannot exist. Three, therefore the universe cannot be past eternal. Now, I've, j I've already given my arguments... Well, Craig's arguments and Ghazali's arguments and Hilbert's arguments for the second premise. And the first premise is true by definition. If an actually infinite number of things cannot exist, then the universe cannot have existed from eternity past because that would involve an actually infinite number of things, namely past events. So the conclusion follows. Therefore, the universe cannot be past eternal, which is synonymous with the second premise of the Kalam cosmological argument. Now, the second philosophical argument is indi it also con it also uh, concerns itself with actual infinites but it's independent from the first argument let's say that you disagreed with this and let's say that you think an actually infinite number of things can exist well even if that were true it is still the case that you cannot traverse an infinite number of things by you cannot form an actually infinite collection by adding one after another. Uh, so, for example, let's say you had an actually infinite number of dominoes. You have one red domino preceded by an actually infinite number of white dominoes. It would be impossible for the red domino to fall over. Before the red domino could fall over, the white domino before it would have to fall over. And before that domino could fall over, the domino before it would have to fall over. And before that domino could fall over, the domino before it would have to fall over, and so on to back into infinity. No domino in the entire infinite set could ever fall over. Why? Because each domino in the set would, would have, have to have an actually infinite number of dominoes fall over first before each of the dominoes could fall over, before a red domino could fall over over the one before it would have to fall over, before that domino could fall over, the one before it would have to fall over, before that domino could fall over, the one before it would have to fall over, so on and so on and so on, ad infinitum. Now, I'm run, I, I'm run, this podcast episode is running on 47 minutes, so I really gotta speed it up here. So, I'm just gonna say, look, uh, the dominoes in this illustration represent past events. Before today could, could come about, yesterday had to come about. Before yesterday could come about, the day before it had to come about. Before that day could come about, the day before it had to come about. Now, if the universe is past eternal, no event no in history could ever come about, because there would always be an event before it that would have to come about first. So... But obviously we're here. The red domino has fallen over. Today has dawned. The present moment has arrived. What this entails is that the universe had a beginning. The time is not past infinite. So, with, uh, and here's another way to, to think of it. What's going to happen tomorrow... Tomorrow, we're going to add another day to the set of past events. Now, if the universe were actually infinite, if the universe were uh, never had a beginning, we, we would have already passed through an actually infinite number of events, which is impossible, but let's say it is for the sake of argument. Let's say it is. What's going to happen tomorrow? We're going to add another day. We're going to add another event to the number of past events. Wait a minute, does that mean that we're going to add to infinity? That's impossible. Infinity is the largest number there is. You can't add to infinity. It, infinity is greater than any finite number. Contrary to what Buzz Lightyear said, you cannot go to infinity and beyond. 
Now, if you don't believe me, just wait a little while. <laughs> In fact, just wait five minutes. We're going to have we're going to have another minute to the number. We're going to have five more minutes in the uh, number of past minutes. So, from both philosophy and science, we have an abundance of evidence for the truth of the second premise. The universe began to exist. Whatever begins to exist has a cause. The universe began to exist. Therefore, the universe has a cause. Now, uh, before this podcast is over, and I got ten minutes before I, before I have to cut it off, I want to explain what properties a cause of the universe must have. Why think that the cause is God? After all, the, the syllogism doesn't have God at the end. It just has a cause. Well, this is where the conceptual analysis of the conclusion comes into play. When you do a conceptual analysis, several attributes of theological significance come about. I think, most reasonably, the cause of the universe must be spaceless, timeless, immaterial, uncaused, powerful, supernatural, and personal. The cause must be spaceless. Why? Because before the Big Bang, there was no space. The cause of space cannot be in space. If space did not exist prior to the Big Bang, then the cause of the Big Bang cannot be in space. It must be spaceless. Just as a builder of a house cannot be inside of a house, but must be beyond the house. A builder of a car cannot be inside of the car prior to bringing the car into being. He must be carless. He must be non... He must be transcendent to the car. So the cause of space must be transcendent to space, non-spatial or spaceless. The cause of the universe must be timeless, non-temporal. Why? Because it created time. Again, you cannot be inside of the thing that you are bringing into being. The cause must be immaterial. Why? Because material objects have mass. They occupy spatial dimensions. They take up space. You can't fit a million people in a Volkswagen Beetle. So, since the cause is spaceless, as we've already discerned, it cannot be material. It doesn't take up space, because it doesn't exist in space. It must be immaterial, non-physical. The cause must be uncaused. Why? Well, for a couple of reasons. Because we've already established that it's timeless. A timeless being cannot be a created being. A timeless being must be eternal, uncaused, always existed, never had a beginning. Because to have a beginning to your existence requires a before and after relationship. There was a time before you existed and a time after you came into existence. But in a state of timelessness, there is no before and after. There is no before the cause came of the universe came into being and after it came into being. So that's one reason why it must be timeless. Another reason is that, and in, as I have already shown in support of the second premise of the Kalam argument, an infinite regression is impossible. You cannot have an... Uh, so this is, what, this is why it is... is Uh, well, this is why it is pointless to ask if God created the universe, who created God? I'm just going to put that out there. Uh, there has to be an uncaused cause somewhere. As Frank Turek likes to say, something must be eternal, either the universe or whatever caused the universe. Since we have good scientific and philosophical evidence that it's not the universe, then it, the, the uncaused 
never began uncreated thing must be the cause of the universe. The cause must be unimaginably powerful, if not omnipotent. Why? Well, because it created the universe out of nothing, out, not out of pre-existing materials. The universe didn't come into being from nothing, but it did come into being out of nothing. That is to say, it did not have, it was not made out of pre-existing stuff. So anything able to create without using any pre-existing stuff must be unimaginably powerful. It must be supernatural. Why? Well, the origin of the universe is the origin of all nature. There cannot be a natural cause for the origin of nature. What is a natural cause? A natural cause, by definition, is a cause coming from nature. We can, we can rephrase the second premise of the argument to say nature began to exist. So you can't, if nature began to exist, you can't say that a natural cause is behind it. Natural causes are causes coming from nature. Gravity causes a rock to fall. That's a natural explanation. That's a natural cause. Because there's natural stuff going on. But before nature existed, there were no causes coming from nature. So what must the cause be? The cause must be transcendent to nature. That's the definition of supernatural. Finally, the cause must be a personal being, an a person, an unembodied mind. There are three reasons why this has to be the case. First, this is an entailment of the cause's immateriality, or non-physicalness. Philosophers recognize two things as being spaceless, timeless, immaterial objects. They're either abstract objects, like numbers, or unembodied minds. Abstract objects... If they exist, they would exist as non-material things, and so would unembodied minds, something like a soul or a spirit. But abstract objects don't have any causal power. That's part of what it means to be abstract. The number three is not going to be doing anything anytime soon. The number four is not going to make you scrambled eggs for breakfast. So since abstract objects are causally impotent, it therefore follows that an unembodied mind is the, the cause of the universe's beginning. Secondly, if the cause of the universe wasn't a person, but a mechanistic agent, then the origin of the universe would have, ha would have happened infinitely long ago, and hence we would have an eternally old universe instead of one with a beginning. In his book, The Holman Quick Source Guide to Christian Apologetics, Doug Powell gives an excellent brief illustration to make this point. He writes, quote, Note that this description only describes what is necessary for the Big Bang to work. But if there is such an entity just as the one described, it is not sufficient for the creation of the universe. Just because this entity does exist does not mean the universe must exist. Something is still missing. Intentionality. A will to make it happen. A car that has a working engine, a healthy battery, a properly con connected electrical engine, and is full of gas, has all of, the, has all of the necessary conditions for running. Although they have the necessary conditions, they lack the sufficient conditions. Cars that are moving down the street have necessary and sufficient conditions for running. That is why they are moving. What do moving cars have that the parked cars do not? They have drivers. And what is a driver? It is a being that is not part of the car. It, it has the power to start the car, and it does not rely on the car for its existence. And it has the will to start the car. Thus, the universe needs a driver, an intelligent agent that is capable of choosing whether to create the universe or not. End quote. In Powell's car illustration, the reason the car was started a finite time ago is that a person got in and purposefully turned the ignition. The only scenario in which the necessary and sufficient conditions can be present from eternity past, yet the effect not be just as eternal, 
is if the deciding factor in bringing about the effect is a free choice. Now, I'm running out of time. I don't I, I don't have time to go into this last explanation. It's from Richard Swinburne. If you want to if you want to read about it, get my book Inference to the One True God: Why I Believe in Jesus Instead of Other Gods. Um, it's available on Amazon.com. Inference to the One True God: Why I Believe in Jesus Instead of Other Gods. Um, it's also going to be in a revised version of that book that's coming out sometime later this year called The Case for the One True God, a scientific, philosophical, and historical case for the God of Christianity. This up, this revised version is, in my opinion, it is ten times better than the original version. It's more heavily cited. There, are, I, I cite more scholarly sources. I, um, I get into the problem of evil, whereas I don't in inference. And... Um, yeah, it's just it's much better. But get the get the book that's already out if you wanna if you wanna read this this illustration that I draw from Richard Swinburne. Uh, but the two the two arguments I've already given for the personality of the universe's first cause is sufficient. Um, now there are objections to the argument that atheists give, and this will be the topic of next week's podcast. I will get into objections that atheists have to premise one, premise two, as well as the conceptual analysis of the argument. So if you have some objections to this argument, if you think that there are holes in it, just be patient, come back next week, and I will talk about all of the objections that I have heard to this objection. And if I don't get to your objection, or if you have an objection I've never heard of before, send me an email, cerebralfaith at gmail.com. I'll respond to it in a blog post, or maybe I'll respond to it in a future podcast. Uh, but do that. So, thank you for listening. And I hope that um, I hope that this has caused you to th- to think. I hope it's convinced you that God exists. If you if you ha- weren't convinced already, but if you're not convinced, if you have some objections, come back next week. Thank you very much for listening, and I'll see you next time. <laughs>